the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back Thursday, October 28th, 2021. A lot to do today. We'll talk about the uh, new quote unquote compromise legislation and a bunch of other important things. But the CEO of AT&T writes on the corporation's website this exactly. Quote, our corporate value to stand for equality. That's a thing that's in caps. Our corporate value to stand for equality has never been more relevant, not only inside AT&T, but outside as well. It is a business imperative to champion equality, diversity, and inclusion in every aspect of our business. That's why we are committed to ensuring our workplace is inclusive and that we recruit, retain, and advance people with a wide diversity of backgrounds and perspectives. Notice he uses the word inclusive twice. So Christopher Rufo got a hold of some of the materials they're using at AT&T to train and instruct their employees. And boy, is it interesting. Here's an excerpt from one of the documents. The United States is a racist society. How about this one? Quote, white people, you are the problem. Regardless how much you say you detest racism, you are the sole reason it has flourished for centuries. This is an instruction plan, a lesson plan for AT&T employees. White people, you are the problem. Regardless of how much you say you detest racism, you are the sole reason it has flourished for centuries. And it goes on to say American racism is a uniquely white trait and black people cannot be racist. White women in particular, quote, have been telling lies on black men since they were first brought to America in chains. Remember how the CEO said never more relevant, never more needed for this commitment, never more important. Really? Nevermore? In 1958, 48% of white Americans polled by Gallup said that if a black person came to live next door, they would likely move. That was 1958. That was 48% of the white people. By 1978, only 13% said that. By 1997, 1%. More important than ever. That's only one measure of racism's profound decline in America, of course. Friendship would be another. This is... um, Written by Jeff Jacoby, in 1964, a mere 18% of white Americans claimed to have a friend who was black. Four decades later, Gallup found the proportion of interracial friendships had more than quadrupled. 82% of whites said they had close non-white friends. Then we get this nonsense about only white people can be racist in the instructions. First of all, it doesn't seem very inclusive to say that, does it? But tell he who assassinated Robert Kennedy. Only white people can be racists. Sirhan Sirhan. How about Louis Farrakhan? Not a racist? Louis Farrakhan, who famously compared Jews to termites and bloodsuckers, referred to Hitler as a very great man and attributes gay marriage, abortion, and gay sex 
to, quote, the satanic influence of Talmudic Jews, close quote. Speaking of Farrakhan, posting videos of this Jew-hating, misogynist, homophobe on social media in support of BLM has recently become a favorite hobby of Hollywood celebrities and major league athletes. So perhaps his racism doesn't matter. Or perhaps because he's black, he's actually not a racist. Or maybe Jews are open season. Al Sharpton, not a racist? Our friend David Harsani wrote, Sharpton most famously threw an entire city into turmoil in 1987 when he cynically exploited the hoax of a black teen named Tawana Brawley, who claimed to have been raped, kidnapped, smeared with feces, and left wrapped in a plastic bag by a group of white men in Dutchess County, New York, all for attention. To the surprise of absolutely no one, a state ground jury would find that her claims had been fabricated. Then again, ruined lives are strewn across Al Sharpton's career. Maybe Democrats need to be reminded that Sharpton used a tragic 1991 car accident to incite a four-day race riot in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Or maybe they just don't care. It was Sharpton who stoked anger over the imaginary nexus between Tel Aviv and South Africa and the diamond merchants right here, his phrase. After the Jewish community protested, Sharpton said, quote, Jews want to get it on? Tell them to pin their yarmulkes back and come over to my house. Close quote. But of course, Sharpton's bejeweled and rotund frame was, as always, hiding behind bodyguards. It was his mob that took over. And one man who forgot to pin back his yarmulke was a man named Yankel Rosenbaum, 29 years old, visiting from Australia, turned down a wrong street, was dragged from his car out of his car to the shouts of Sharpton's, of Sharpton's troops kill the Jews by throngs of these angry troops, and they stabbed him to death. Never once did Sharpton ever show any remorse for any of this. When in 1995, Fred Harari operated a store called Freddy's Fashion Mart, he had to evict his own subtenant, who happened to be black. Sharpton told the protesters there, quote, we will not stand by and allow them to move this brother so that some white interloper can expand his business. Never mind that it had been a black Pentecostal church that had asked Harari to evict the record store owner. If you're inclined, there is online any number of available audio clips of Sharpton throwing out, spewing out his venom. Larry Elder put it this way. So what indeed does Sharpton's longevity say about race in America? It says that the media and others who should know better apply a different and lower standard of acceptability for a black race hustler like Sharpton or Farrakhan than for people like David Duke. They do the same with Louis Farrakhan. Both are much more popular than David Duke, of course. One party shamed and eliminated David Duke from its ranks. One party embraces and coddles the likes of Farrakhan and Sharpton in its and this is the huge shame of the civil rights movement generally. It was about single standards once upon a time, the same standards for everyone. Think the phrase, one man, one vote. Think the phrase, colorblindness. Think the phrase, separate but equal yielding to integration because separate was inherently not equal. Think the phrase, all men are created equal. This crud about white people, you are the problem, or white people, you are the sole problem, or American racism is a uniquely white trait is as wrong factually and historically as it would be for AT&T to give people two empty soup cans and a rope and call it high-tech communication. 
But you see, with examples like that, it's obviously wrong. Dare I say it, naturally wrong. The first, only white people can be racist, is equally wrong in society, but accepted, absorbed, and even allowed in the corporate offices and human resource departments of major American corporations. Why? Why? Is it less damaging? Or will it just not mean much to profit margins because nobody will stop using AT&T over their first lie while they would certainly lose money over their second if they were crazy enough to promote it? But it's no less factually wrong. And it certainly is harmful. Robert Kennedy, when he told a black audience in Indiana for the first time his news to the audience that Martin Luther King was killed, he said, quote, on this difficult day in this difficult time for the United States, it is perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence that evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness, with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country. In great polarization, black people amongst black, white people amongst white, black amongst white, white against black, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and to replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land, with an effort to understand with compassion and love. I'm sorry. But what AT&T and so many others are doing is the opposite of compassion and love, as well as the opposite of fact. And it constitutes little short of an aggravated and catalyzed race war in this country, just to sound and be au courant, in turning an opinion based on junk thought into fact. I'm reminded of Leo Strauss by Leo Strauss that opinion is the opposite of knowledge and thus nature. If anyone's opinion can become fact on no basis other than opinion and on a basis that is not historically valid, we are in the realm of dismissing the cost of lies so readily that we will no longer recognize the truth at all. I can't imagine such a dystopia, for it will fast become an anarchist-ridden thunderdome. This, for a country based and founded on natural rights and truths, is an ignominious epitaph, isn't it? Thank the good old American corporation that brings you such. Reach out and lie to someone should be AT&T's new credo. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Bill, I'm, yeah, I'm going to do something you're either going to love or hate. Sometimes, like during the breaks particularly, it's hard to communicate with you and Anthony and Rusty and the guys over there. Uh, is Tony going to get a job too? I know Tony's going to love this. Story. Okay. <laughs> well, um, because, you know, you're doing other stuff and the mics are off and that sort of thing. So it dawned on me, I think you and I need an intercom system. And like those old Bob Newhart white boxes on the desk things – but you can't get those anymore. Um, I don't even know what they're called. You know what I'm talking about? They're like half the size of a shoebox or something, and they were white. And you just I'm gonna, I'm going to order us an intercom system online. Would you like that? Would that make you upset or bad? Or, or would you like? Would the guys like it? Okay. All right. We're going to get an intercom system. Uh, good. That has been solved. I thought that would be harder than it was. Uh, 
go grab the corporate credit card at the next break if you don't mind. I think Diane has it. All right. Uh, it's a mi- <laughs> Nancy Pelo- Joe Biden gave a speech today. Nancy Pelosi gave a talk today, a speech today. Neither taking questions. They have reduced that 3.5 trillion to now something closer to 1.8 trillion. Which begs an interesting question. And a, and a caveat. The caveat is I don't care about the number so much. It's all too high. I really care about what's in it. And, of course, this thing is still something like 2,000 pages. So we're working on it now. But but if it's all paid for and it doesn't cost anyone anything, which is what Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris kept saying, why do you need to go from $3.5 trillion to $1.8 trillion if it doesn't cost anything? Anyway, well, obviously, we know that $1.8 trillion does cost a lot. There used to be an old saying. I don't remember exactly how it went, but it was something like, if you owe the bank $50,000, you're in trouble. If you owe the bank $500 million, they're in trouble. Yeah, Think about that when we're now talking about $3.5 and $1.8 trillion. Who's in trouble here? Who's in trouble? And who owes it? And where's it coming from? And why, why, why do we think we need to seize money from employers, seize money from employers, take money from employers if you prefer, take money from employers by the billions, $10 billion from the top 200 corporations in America. Why do we want to take $10 billion from them? To pay for this when corporations are already struggling for enough money to get the employees they need? Why would we think that a corporation's no longer expanding, no longer hiring, no longer able to give signing bonuses or other kinds of bonuses, no longer able to employ with that money they otherwise had? to the tune of $10 billion each, why would we think taking that from them and giving it to the government will yield a better economy? Well, there is a lot in this $1.8 trillion that we already do know about it. Our friends at Americans for Tax Reform talked about a particularly interesting provision where President Biden and the Congressional Democrats are calling for the creation of, this ought to be fun, a civilian climate corps. Not a climate corps, a civilian climate corps. It has to be a civilian climate corps, a CCC, because as Nancy Pelosi said, in many ways, this is as big or as monumental as what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. It's tasked with the the vague mission of, quote-unquote, advancing environmental Justice. I assume that means tree equity. That is a phrase in this legislation. I am sure tree equity is part and parcel of environmental justice. You and I laugh at this as it should. It's risible as we should because it's risible. But shouldn't we cry when we know that the Democrats on Capitol Hill and too many throughout the rest of the country actually aren't laughing at it and think it's really a serious thing and an important thing, an imperative thing. 
The federal program will, quote, recruit, select, fund, and oversee, close quote, 300,000 core members by 2025. 300,000. The Civilian Climate Corps will make will be a make-work program for progressive activists. That's what it will be. Members of this Green New Deal Youth Patrol will receive taxpayer-funded housing, food, health care, child care, and up to $50,000 in university tuition payments, as well as transportation to work. You can do a lot with a $50,000 tuition payment to a college, and you can learn a lot of nonsense with that $50,000. There's a fact sheet on it, quote, participants or core members will receive education and training in coordination with local green groups. As Main Street struggles to find workers, Democrats want to recruit and deploy 300,000 activists across the country serving as the government stamped hall monitor for the Green New Deal. Perhaps they'll knock on your door, wielding a clipboard and asking you to turn down your thermostat. The CCC's inclusion in the Democrat spending package comes after Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who's worried about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez challenging him for a primary, vowing that he would, quote, work tirelessly to achieve a big and bold civilian climate corps that places justice at the center and urgently addresses our interlocking climate and economic crisis, close quote. In addition, the plan will have taxpayer-funded housing, clothing, and feeding of Climate Corps members. As I said, taxpayers would be responsible for the Climate Corps members' housing, clothing, feeding, and medical expenses. Nothing screams good-paying jobs like an allowance from the government. You don't think I'm being true? Here's the bill's text. Quote, the president may provide housing for persons employed in the Civilian Conservation Corps and furnish them with such subsistence, clothing, medical attendance, and hospitalization and cash allowance as may be necessary during the period they are employed, close quote. Taxpayer-funded transportation to work for Climate Corps members. Not only will the government provide food, clothing, housing, and allowance, it will also pick up members of Climate Corps and drive them to work. Oh, there we go. Did you do that deliberately? <laughs> All right, I'm Seth. We'll be right back. 602 508 Oh, I can tell it's a good music day. By the way, did you get my new one? Not that we need it today, but I, yeah, good. Great, great, great. We're always improving, always adding, always looking for more and better music. Story about an article, too, in a moment. Um, I had a, it's a great audience. My gosh, such a talented and smart audience. A listener uh, of ours, um, uh, a listener of ours texted me. Uh, his name is Gary. It texted me or emailed me, I should say, an article from Tablet Magazine, and I, I'm familiar with Tablet a little bit. I, I think I've read things here and there. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, I've since learned more about it. But it was an article by one Ann Bauer published a couple of days ago. She's a novelist, and it's called I Have Been Through This Before, having to do with a lot of things we've talked about on this show, starting with uh, with a story about Uh, A a famous psychiatrist I have mentioned many times on this show named Bruno Bettelheim, whose book uh, Uses of Enchantment I refer to often. And she starts with him and then gets us to COVID uh, and the nonsense of our government 
It's a very intelligent, long essay. And so I want to thank the listener, uh, Gary, for sending it my way. I want to commend it to all of you. Uh, you can go to tabletmag.com and, uh, or, or just Google. I have been through this before at tabletmag.com. And Bauer, I don't know her politics. Based on her writings in places like Salon, I'm guessing she's probably more on the liberal side, but I don't know, and it doesn't matter. It's a great piece of writing. Anyway, I reached out to her uh, this morning after having read it through twice, and she'll be our guest a little bit later today. So don't don't hesitate to send me stuff, um, and more importantly, don't hesitate to call, since you know I learn from you guys every single day. Speaking of one I learn from every single day is Rick in Phoenix. Hi, Rick. There, Seth. Thank you for taking my call, Absolutely. my friend. You t- you, thanks for calling. <clears throat> hey, Seth, your monologue, as always, was terrific, and it put me in mind of a quote that I recently came across by George Orwell. Oh, dear. You'll like this. I bet I will. I don't, I don't know if like is the right word. You will recognize it. Okay. He said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's perfect. That's yeah, perfect. Yeah, and uh, it ties in with your monologues. Well, it ties in with your whole shows for the last year and a half, I guess. We've reached an <laughs> age where the first task of the intelligent is to restate the obvious. You put that together with your Orwell quote, uh-huh. and that's where we are, because we're in the age of doublethink, aren't we? Yes. We're in the age of doublethink. Sadly, to, we are. To know and not to know. Yeah. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To use uh-huh. logic against logic. To repudiate morality while laying claim to it. that sound familiar? That sounds familiar. Yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. To use logic against logic and to repudiate morality while laying claim to it. Yeah. To believe that yeah. that's an interesting one, you know. You listen to that kind of uh, that kind of intellectual intellectual graft or assault of uh, on on the mind or on the brain that AT and T is putting out, oh, and and, and 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 that's it's an interesting thing by being immoral throughout this effort of immorality of pitting race against race, starting mm-hmm. what is. Exactly the language you would use if you were interested in starting a race war. By them using that with their employees and doing that with their employees, they're doing that in the name of laying claim to morality. This is the moral and right thing to do. And it's an odd thing for people who have condemned the kind of morality you've talked about and the kind of morality I've talked about for maybe our whole adult lives. Seth, have you had a chance to talk any about the... Uh, article in this month's Imprimus by Roger Kimball. I actually have it, if you'll bear with me. January 6th Insurrection Hoax. Yeah, I have Hoax, not host. Insurrection Hoax. Yes, I have it in my briefcase, which I, my trusty black bag here with all the launch codes in it. Excellent. (laughs) Now I am not I am not like Ed Meese, the Attorney General of the United States under Ronald Reagan, who is a great Great man. But do you uh, know what they said about Ed Meese when writing no. him memos? The most dangerous place for it to end up was in his briefcase. That is not me. <laughs> Though my briefcase is bulging. <laughs> Though my briefcase isn't, Bill, Bill and Anthony can attest to it. 
it will get well, read. Let me let me share this real quickly. Well, just hold because, the hold the thought. Hold the thought. Okay, we'll be right okay. back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Rick in Phoenix holding over. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You are most welcome, Seth. Most welcome. I'm always happy to do it. Seth, I just got to say, you are the epitome of what an excellent teacher should be because listening to you stimulates the thinking process. And that's why if it seems like every time I talk to you, I'm just going on and on, it's because you stimulate my thinking process and all this stuff just comes out, which I appreciate. Well, thanks for saying that. Can I say something about modern education and what you just said? Absolutely. That's what modern education doesn't do anymore, but what it used to do at its best. Now it's about making you feel good. And, And we don't walk into this office, do we, Bill? to make people feel good. We come here to make people think. We do it as best we can with good cheer. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're going to have to hear things that don't make you feel good, that is not welcome anymore on college campuses. That's right, unfortunately. And that means truth is at great discount. Yep. And facts are at great discount. Yeah. And true history is at great discount. Education, modern education is now about empowering bias, mm-hmm. empowering and enriching bias so that the people feel good. The worst thing you can do is offend anyone. Anyway, go ahead, Rick. Well, and, and as is currently and growingly apparent, that approach has very dire consequences for a culture and a society. You bet it does. Yeah, you bet absolutely. it does, because because you get millions and millions, and I mean by the tens of millions, yep. of young adults who will become middle-aged and old adults right. walking around with the least firm grip and grasp on the truth that could possibly be given in something that is still called a Republican form of government and a democracy. It just makes conversation almost impossible. It makes politics certainly impossible. It does. Makes it very difficult. And this article by Kimball addresses some of that. In this article on the January 6th insurrection hoax, he deals with uh, probably a dozen uh, lies, misuses, and abuses of governmental power and correcting the record. But in one of the parts that he's talking about, he, he gives a quote here that I think applies to what you were saying just a little earlier. He says, someday, maybe someday soon, uh, let me find it again, this witch's Sabbath, this festival of, uh, of scapegoating and what George Orwell called that hideous ecstasy of hate will be at an end. Perhaps someday people will be aghast and some will be ashamed of what they did to the president of the United States and the people who supported him. What do you a uh, question for you? And by the way, I love Roger um, and, yeah. he's, and he's always smart and eloquent. Yeah. Um, question for you. Do you think that's right? I hope it is right. I hope. But my fear is, Seth, that it might not happen. 
I, I, I think it is going to take a spiritual awakening because I believe, and, and this is, you know, me, this is not some mayor of New York telling you you got to believe this, <laughs> but I believe there is a dark cloud uh, over much of the United States, and it it has a spiritual component such that, and I think we talked about this last week, maybe you and I, uh, that people, so many people in our society can't even see the truth. Yeah. And and you alluded to it just a minute ago when you were talking about the educational system. Yeah. It, it's designed to accomplish that, to, to incapacitate yeah. people right. right. towards seeing the truth. That's and right. that's one of the reasons why a spiritual component is so important to this. Because if God is truth, and he is, and if he hates lies, and he does, then that makes all the difference. But if God is not truth, or he's not real, and then it doesn't really matter whether he hates lies or not. So eh, it's okay to tell lies, as long as they accomplish our purpose. Right, Harry Reid? Exactly, and, exactly right, uh, Rick. I mean, I don't know. I guess it, it, it was in 1858, originally, when Lincoln was nominated to represent the Republican Party in his run for Senate in Illinois, he gave the House Divided speech. Yeah, and, yeah. and he said, a house divided itself, also, also echo, echoing from the Bible, a, high, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And, yeah. and he said, I don't expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It'll be all one thing or all the other. I'm not sure that would be right right now, but it's where I, yeah. my brain keeps going because it's a it's a. It's 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 a it's a it's a dream, it's a it's a it's a wish yes. to be desired more than anything else. I want the I division do. to end. I yeah, fear the country will. Yeah, but you know, uh, you had Dan on, I think, yesterday. Dan Galanter, yeah, yeah, and you know, he made the very important point that you cannot compromise with evil. Right. You know, you right. can say. Uh, two and two is four, right. but if someone else says, no, two and two is five, you, you can't compromise that. There's no—what are you going to say, two and two is four and a half? Yeah, no, yeah, that was his point, right? Yeah, you, it doesn't, that was his point. It's exactly. still you, you not true, right? It's still not true. Right. By the way, speaking of, of recommendations, yes. if you want to spend—and it'll take you about a night and not much more— uh-huh. if you want to spend a night— reading one of the best nonfiction books published at the end of the 20th century. Yeah. Read Dan Galerter's dad's book, Drawing oh. Life. Drawing Life. David Galerter is his name. And drawing? Drawing life. like an artist. Drawing? Yes, okay. Drawing Life. Drawing because life because by David Galerter. Yeah, 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 yeah. David is himself an amateur artist of some note. But he's a professor at Yale who was, you may recall, uh, attacked by the Unabomber, blown up by the Unabomber. And it's the book about that experience, and it's one of the most erudite, intellectual, and apprehensible, understandable uh, threads of culture and history and politics that I have ever read. You can do it in one night. Okay. 
Drawing Life yeah. by David Galindo. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You could probably thank get it for, for two bucks somewhere, I'm sure. Just, thank you for yeah, that you recommendation. Yeah, you betcha. You bet. Thank you for and your call. And I highly recommend that Imprimus article. Oh, it's, uh, it's coming out of my Mies... My, it's my, very, very it's, good. It's coming out of my Mies briefcase. All right, I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Oh, I knew it'd be a good music day. I knew it'd be a good day, and it's been a great day so far. Larry in Tempe, my old friend Larry. Larry, you were two-timing me. Seth, oh well. I heard you on the Prager Show a couple of days ago, and I said to... Not in the time slot. Yeah, (laughs) I heard Bill. I talked to Bill, my producer. I said... Yeah. yeah, I said, uh, we're going to, if next time Larry calls, we'll give him a little more time than Dennis did. We'll give him a little more time. <laughs> but we only have a short segment, so I may have to ask you to call back. But get, get, give me what you got real quick anyway. Sure. Well, I was, I was intrigued, motivated to call because of, as you're talking about, AT&T and their, oh, yeah. uh, their whole outlook. And so many employers uh, view from the, the, the three word term that I just don't like so well is, you know, the inclusion and diversity and equity. And from a person with a disability that that doesn't perhaps directly compare to skin color. But I think if we were to look at things more appropriately, I think we'd see it more, much more equal in the respect that when I go to apply for a job, which I haven't done for 16 years because I've been at the same employer, I want people to give me a chance not because I'm blind, but because perhaps I'm qualified. And because you're and, damn smart, which I can attest to. Well, well, hopefully. Hopefully I'm smart in what they need me to be to be smart in. Uh, well, you I, do, are you are you free in our five o'clock hour? I would love you to call back in our five o'clock hour, just because I got a few guests in my next hour. Would that work on your schedule? Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Let me yeah. let me ask you a question, partly in jest, but mm-hmm. I think it shows the absurdity of everything. Uh, there are all these websites that tell you now how you can tell if you're in the presence of a racist and what racist speak <laughs> is, race speak is, mm-hmm. and one of them, Ibram Kendi, others say this: if someone says they're colorblind. That's a racist statement. Now, I wonder if someone would say that to you. If you said, well, I'm colorblind, could they call you a racist for, 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 uh, for saying that? This is how absurd it is. Well, yeah. Oh, exactly. If they're determined to use that as a weapon against people who are striving not to be racist and who truly don't care what someone's skin color is, then, of course, they'd say that to me, too. Because I, I guess they would. I guess they yes, would. Yes. I guess they would. Stupidity isn't going to stop. One of my one of my favorite sayings is "None so blind as one who will not see." I like that. I like that. Yeah. Not, okay, so I'm going to hear from you in about an hour or so. Um, yeah. What was Irving Crystal's line? For those who lack the will to see things as they really are. For those who lack the will to see things as they truly are, there is nothing quite so mystifying as the obvious. That's a hell of a way to end the hour. We'll be right back. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.